read a little bit and I knew already some of the projects and um, I just would rather that we start with Rogue, right? For open culture and the story behind Rogue, why Rogue is Rogue and how to start. You sure. can start anywhere. Okay, well, you know, uh, I'll, I'll try to give you the in the nutshell answer, but you know, you know how it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> so actually, um, we had a very beautiful moment about a week or two ago, uh, June 20th, uh, or 21st and 22nd. Uh, it was the 10th anniversary of our very, very first ever public event, mm -hmm. uh, which was called OS Juba, mm -hmm. Open Source or Open Systems Juba, where we put the question on the table, um, could Juba, the capital of the world's newest country, be the first open source city? Uh, basically, as, as this whole notion of why is there so little open source or open culture or open knowledge being used in so-called international development. So it was a sort of theoretical question uh, that we, we posed together with a whole bunch of these organizations in Berlin that are interested in or related to tech activism and media and that kind of stuff, uh, including people like Geraldine, mm -hmm. who was part of that, um, part of that event. And, uh, a number of people who we've since been working with a lot, like Ela Kagel and people from Ice Bauhaus. Um, and so that was actually a pre-Rogue event. We, we put that under the label of Rogue Agency for Open Culture and Critical Transformation, but we didn't exist as an, as an entity yet. So we, uh, we created the agency as a formal registered whatever, uh, about a year later, in uh, in twenty twenty not twenty twenty three in twenty thirteen, so we'll have our tenth anniversary as a proper organization next year. Uh, but it was it was very cool uh, uh, to have this flashback to this first ever thing, which then also you know got us into South Sudan in the first place. I mean, we we really looked at it as a theoretical situation because this new country needed to create all kinds of structures in order to um, yeah build itself up mm -hmm. um, so it wasn't just about the, the crazy challenges of course of hunger and which you know is, is, is obviously a real challenge but even just more banal things like how do you set up an administration how do you set up an education system and how does how does the um, let's say the the data and the knowledge and the structures of each one of these things relate and connect to each other mm -hmm. um, so we can look at the usual way that development is done in a very proprietary siloed kind of way and we were proposing a scenario where we would look at these things as an open system where structuring an education system would inform structuring of a health system which would inform policy making and vice versa like to get into this kind of loop and that's kind of what this OS Juba idea was about and um, a number of people came to that event who we didn't expect right away but for example from the foreign office someone came because they were interested in this kind of idea which they didn't have any clue about um, and they said oh well you know this is a very interesting idea you should take this to South Sudan and do this there. So before the end of 2020, 2012, uh, we were in South Sudan um, 
we had a forum on open knowledge and sustainable media together with one of our partners and friends, uh, MICT, mm -hmm. um, who had been working in the Sudans for a long time already. And uh, with that, for us, uh, it really kind of like started the whole work with like, you know, young innovators, people who are trying to develop media structures in South Sudan specifically. And um, we've pretty much stuck to that and them because you can't just kind of start doing something like that and, you know, after a couple of months say, okay, oh, that was nice, fun, see you later. Uh, when, you, when you get into something like that, you're in it for the long ride. Mm -hmm. And we're still on that ride. Nice. Can I ask at this point, I'm really interested, and that actually is something I don't know, even though we've worked together for a while, when did the personal transformation happen? So we talk about critical transformation, we talk about open culture, but you as Steve, when did this word open really was understood and adopted by you before it became your, and, and how did it happen? Fadia. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm, an old, I'm an old guy, right? <laughs> uh, that's something that I've been working on and with, not even necessarily consciously, I think when I was already still in university. So I studied architecture, um, but I wasn't really necessarily intent on becoming like the standard Canadian architect who sits in an office and draws window details and, you know, whatever. Um, but I was already in university, I was very interested in um, issues of cultural space, um, cultural transformations and how, how architecture, how the design of space, how media, which is a spatial thing, affects how we move in space and in society. So I already had a number of projects some of which I got into trouble for because was, you can't do this kind of thing in the School of Architecture, blah, blah, blah. Um, and um, so when I finished university and I came to Germany because the wall fell and I was curious about what all this is about, and um, that was already very much an open systems kind of thing because I had this idea to do a kind of a studio program for architecture students from East and West Germany, in East Germany, to be able to understand what uh, this sort of like this mechanism of that transformation was, was about. It was in, in East Germany and in Eastern Europe, but very special East Germany, when the wall fell down, something, I mean, quite insane happened. Um, most people were not expecting that thing to happen or not necessarily in their lifetime. Um, and then it happened. And um, that had the consequence that every single person in East Germany, in the DDR, every single one, without any exception, every single person's life is going to change and change radically. Whether you're for the system, whether you were against the system, whether you didn't give a shit about the system, whether you were too young or too old, doesn't matter that was such a fundamental transformation that everything was going to change except that not a single person knew how mm -hmm. it was going to change so it's a very very bizarre you know unique Moment. situation whereas at the same time 
for the vast majority of people in West Germany, and now I can't say 100%, but I would say certainly a majority, unscientifically, I would say majority, has no change in their lives, or not real change. Maybe pay, pay a little bit more taxes, a couple of smelly cars on the street, but no, no fundamental scenario. Their, their lives just keep on going. So you've got this very, very interesting kind of dichotomy between these two former countries that were, you know, somehow brought together, um, where one obviously takes the lead, uh, again, for obvious economic and political reasons. Um, and this is something which we still see and feel today. I mean, it has not resolved itself yet completely. Um, so that whole scenario of we know everything's going to change, but we don't know how, was really what kind of drove me to also to come and to do stuff here. Although I thought I was only going to be here for a few months and then go back to Ottawa and then do that thing of sitting in an office and draw window details for some Ottawa architect and uh, start my career. But it didn't happen. I ended up in East Germany for almost 10 years. Um, working on that kind of that, that scenario of social and societal and cultural transformation through the lens of media culture mm -hmm. um, and that for me was also very open tech um, hacktivist um, yeah cultural underground kind of uh, scene and, and world as well That's which, actually... we call, which we called sorry just that we called it deep Europe Deep Europe. Deep, deep Europe. But it's actually perfect transition um, to that next question because as you spoke, I was wondering if that was the same moment when you have decided to start Genoub OS, right? And whether you've seen similarities no, like no. or like an analogy or something between East Germany and this transition and also... Yeah, so we're, 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 we're talking about early 1990s. Yeah, I know. Yeah? Uh, the whole... Ju uh, um, um, OS Juba and Rogue idea uh, that didn't come until uh, yeah a good 20 years later like 2011 uh, and yeah. so on um, but let me clarify yeah. what I mean like standing again in 2011 I'm guessing that's the time did you feel like there was similarities between that moment standing in 211 and then standing there at 89 or 90 something yeah. and thinking for, for there's sure, possibilities yeah yeah i mean um <clears throat> obviously what happened in berlin and germany and central and eastern europe in 1989 and 1990 uh was was definitely a unique time and space that for those of us who are old enough to have experienced that, <laughs> uh, was definitely a mind-blowing, crazy, interesting time. And I had the privilege and the luck of falling into that and being a player in that whole thing, like right in the middle of it. Um, and something like that won't, doesn't, doesn't come along uh, in, yeah, not more than once a lifetime, I don't think. Um, and who knows when it will happen again. But for sure, when South Sudan became an independent country, uh, of course, very, very different dynamic, different reasoning for that. But 
for sure, one of the, one of the things that led me and the people that I was I don't know, working and talking and playing with at the time uh, were some of those kinds of notions and scenarios of transformation and how systems can interact with each other in order to kind of strengthen the kind of situation and scenario that, that one is in. But I also experienced this in a somewhat slightly different way 10 years before that when I was working in Ethiopia, mm-hmm. um, which is where I kind of got introduced to, or not kind of, it's where I got introduced to the dynamics of, of Africa. Um, Ethiopia was also very interesting post-communist or post-socialist transformation society because it was firmly the the regime that collapsed in 1990 in Ethiopia was firmly entrenched in the Soviet bubble so um, economically politically they were an outpost of of Soviet power in in Africa and there were a lot of similar things that happened in Ethiopia like in Eastern Europe doctors and professionals were trained for example in Cuba or in the Soviet Union so there were there were a lot of similarities in terms of like outlook of a lot of people but even weird things like building details and and machines and stuff they were coming from East Germany and and so you would see like elevators in 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 places in in Addis that had same kind of details that like those in, in in Prague and stuff so there was just funny weird little things like like that but the society was also undergoing this, this transformation from that kind of extremely hardcore Marxist dictatorship that, uh, that reigned in uh, Ethiopia till 1990 into some kind of a weird, unknown market economy kind of thing without any clear rules and stuff. It's just that what happened in, in Germany, or in Eastern Germany, within the space of one or two years, in Ethiopia it was a lot longer. So when I started doing stuff in Ethiopia in 1999 or 2000, it some of it felt a little bit like early days Dessau, but in kind of slow motion. Mm-hmm. So some of the people we were working with were also very similar to people that we worked with in Dessau, but they were Ethiopians, and just because you know economics and, and all that, things just took longer. So in a certain way, that situation felt, although we were in Ethiopia, in Addis Ababa, it, it had some, in, a, in very kind of weird ways, connections and feelings to having been in Dessau post-unification. But again, this is extremely abstract kind of, you know, things that go on in your, in your brain and when you're experiencing stuff, you know, again, very unscientifically, right? You know, just how things are. Um, and um, so when the idea to start Rogue came about, the idea came before I was, I was actually aware of the independence of South Sudan, but that just kind of played into that kind of that idea and into that whole kind of framework as, ah, this is kind of interesting. Like, what's going to happen with this country? Are they going to have similar kinds of issues, problems, whatever, um, of constructing the state as for example, Ethiopia did post Mengistu or Eastern Europe post, you know, breakdown of the, the wall kind of thing. So, so yeah, there are, there are those linkages, but I mean, um, it, it, you know, it's coming with the, 
the knowledge of 20, 25 years of practice behind it, right? Like how to then apply those things that we had learned, we had dealt with in all these other contexts, but try to apply them into kind of a post-conflict transformation scenario. So, sorry, long, long answer, no, but, but interesting question. I never really thought about it that way, but... I mean, this also somehow leads me to my next question, because, I mean, throughout your projects here at Rogue, you work a lot with this whole idea of behavior change, right? Um, but, I mean, for me personally, as part of GIG, I think a lot in terms of what we do, the value added, what we, what different, what is the thing that we offer? And it always goes back to that change of mindset, right? Thinking that the same tools that we have, if we change our perspective to them, we could do different things. The world could change in a bigger sense, or we could change a, uh, on a smaller level, a community, uh, a group of people, a family, whatever that is. Um, and I was just, I wanted to see your perspective, like, why open culture? What do you think it offers to the world? And what, what, is, what is it that we're going forward to on a bigger level if we say that this what should be happening in the world? Well, and you can't, and you're allowed to be idealistic, right? It's, we're, well, I'm, we're I'm, talking. I'm, I'm, I'm always idealistic. You know? <laughs> um, but, well, first of all, I mean, you, you mentioned behavior change. So that's a very funny term that I never knew until I heard it from a funder. I heard it from well, a funder too. <laughs> you know, and, and, and it really disturbed me because yeah. it has something kind of like psychosomatic about it. Like I'm hypnotizing people. I want to have, you know, behavior change. I, I never, ever thought about anything that I do in the sense that I'm actually changing whether indirectly or directly somebody's behavior uh, uh, for me it's always been more of an issue that these things are all there but the mechanisms the tools and the structures to be able to make things function better or maybe more open are not necessarily so clear so it's not that the behavior of the individual or even of society has to change. I think people in general, everywhere, no matter, and this is, in my experience, it's been like that anywhere I've been, no matter what the system is, whatever, people are generally in a kind of like an open mindset already, but they may not be able to enact it or participate it or to do it because of particular circumstances that, that they're in. Um, and those who work against, you know, a, a kind of a simple, broad definition of open, which can be applied to maybe even the Soros notion of open society or whatever, that, you know, kind of notion that uh, a pluralistic society must be an open one, um, they are people who are obviously threatened by that. So that's where dictatorships come from. That's where Putins come from. That's, that's where corporations come from that try to lock down uh, the ability to move ideas because they think that that might affect their capital or their bottom line, which 
is not necessarily the case. So it, it comes from fear of preserving your own privilege. Um, and I mean, I'm not a Marxist radical who wants to overthrow, uh, you know, the capitalist, you know, democratic scenario that, that we live in, but um, the same way that an open and democratic society actually imposes limits on the locking down of certain things, um, like, you know, you can't just go and shoot people if you feel like it because you think that they might have done something wrong. You can't also completely take advantage of all the people that work for you. Da, 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 da. I mean, there's, you know, there's limits to what open is, depending on how far you want to expand that topic. But in general, everywhere, every society has an intrinsic need for, yeah, dialogue and togetherness in, in one way or another. And it's where it gets restricted more and more and more that political structures are dysfunctional, economic structures are dysfunctional, civil society functions are dysfunctional. The United States is going in that way, ironically. So it's always a battle on all, in all, on all fronts. So this, this, the notion of open culture wasn't something that we just sort of thought we'd like to call this organization because it's something that we think we should kind of do, but it's just because that is what it's about. Mm -hmm. um, and the critical transformation part uh, is because it is a critical process. It's something that requires reflection um, and critique and self-critique. And it, it's, that's, I mean, the, we were doing critical making long before that term was coined, we just didn't know that that's what it was. Um, so it wasn't until, you know, people like Garnet Hertz and, and, uh, and, and others came along in the late 2000s who were coining this term that I and, you know, my colleagues thought, oh yeah, well this is, of course, this is critical making, what we're, what we're doing. We're just using different kinds of tools and stuff. And there's two, you know, there's one stream of critical making, which is an art-based process, uh, which is what Garnet Hertz is doing. There's another stream, which is much more kind of academic and, um, let's say, industry-based, which is the Matt Ratto version from University of Toronto. So those two individuals are the ones who kind of coined that term, but they're compatible and uh, to each other and totally interchangeable also with this notion of open culture and critical transformation. Um, when those things start getting commercialized and locked down, it starts to kind of move away from that. But in any case, it was just a simple thing that um, we thought about this word rogue and in its positive sense, like the word hacker or hacktivist, for me is, is an extremely positive term, you know, tinkering and exploring and rebuilding and stuff. But it's been mis misappropriated, it's been misaligned uh, by people who equate it with criminal activity. If we didn't have hackers or hacktivists, we'd be in a much, much scarier and darker world than, than you know, than we have now. Um, and for us, this necessity to act in a rogue way, which means going outside 
of some norms, looking at structures, systems, developing methodologies, and re-entering the system to try to, try to enact change um, is why it's there and, and why we, uh, we use it. So we attached open culture and critical transformation onto the word rogue in the sense to define what we mean by, by rogue. Love and then that. we didn't we didn't write it rogue. Yeah. Well, that's too easy. We're all coming <laughs> sort of kind of from an art art and code background. So we changed into R zero G to make it kind of like a computer culture idea of rogue. Yeah. And you've had a rebranding recently. That's very nice. M M yeah, because like you, you, you <laughs> I the first there. one came and said, Steve. Yeah. Uh, it and, does look and, a little bit like. <laughs> you still I remember never, that. <laughs> never, yeah, well, we always had trouble with that. But someone right. else said that too. Was, or was it yeah, just my were, brain? You, I think you, my, were the, you were the first one. And, but then other people came and said... But, but, you know, people still, you know, they loved it. And so, we just, I, I don't know, just kept it. I loved it too. I was just saying that it could be seen differently. And in, in <laughs> a sense, you know, if, it, if, if people wouldn't take it so, so nastily, um, in a sense, we are doing that to some people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I thought so, it was very... You know, so it, it's, it's okay. But, how you say that? But the thing is, it wasn't, wasn't intentional. <laughs> I know, but I thought it was still fitting. So this leads me to my last question, actually, now that we've set um, the ground to what you mean by open culture, what you do, why don't you just lead us through the projects that you're working on just quickly in a nutshell and how they're related to each other in a way? Mm. So all the, all the projects that we do are actually in some way related to one another. I mean, it, it does have its root in those early, early youth innovation and media exploration days in, in South Sudan, um, which actually came out of an idea before we were, before it was clear that we were going to do anything with South Sudan. Again, I, was, I wasn't aware of South Sudan and its independence uh, before it happened. Um, but originally the first idea was we should hold an international hacktivist congress in Addis Ababa. Mm -hmm. And we should do this there because Ethiopia is the only country in Africa or the only piece of land in Africa that has not been colonized. So if there's any place, at least in Africa or even just about anywhere on the planet, one could argue, that has not been colonized, it is that former Abyssinian region. So in order to celebrate this conceptual notion of independence, um, which is what we were looking at in terms of hacktivism, we should do this in Addis. Um, and... Um, And this relates also to my work with Transmediale, like the book that you gave back and the stuff that I was doing before. Um, but then a friend of mine, a colleague from MICT, said, oh, Steve, you know, that's a really interesting question, but you should take a look at Juba. Because all what you're saying could be applied to this place that's going to need all this kind of ideas and thinking. And I was like, Juba? Huh? What's that? So we looked at South Sudan, we shifted the whole idea 
to that the challenge of creating this new state, um, and um, that's as I mentioned earlier, that's where the work, at least on a conceptual level, started. But at a certain point, this war broke out, and uh, because we were working with media activists, also social media activists in South Sudan, we also saw that the war in South Sudan, which was, let's say, in the early days, we didn't know where it was going. Again, one of these situations, things are going to change, we don't know how it's going to change, blah, blah, blah. Um, we saw there was a lot of online influence pushing this conflict, and it looked very weird. And, of course, there's a lot of South Sudanese in Canada, um, so it seemed to me, as a Canadian, that I'm also kind of responsible for this war going on, because you know, people from Canada were also playing with playing with fire and all that. So we shifted uh, basically the work that we were doing at that time to kind of deal with counteracting this uh, online scenario of incitement to violence, and that kind of opened a new a new chapter, let's say, where we started then working on these two tracks, where the one track became the J-Hub and AskNet access to skills and knowledge programs, networks, and so on, which again, about youth innovation or innovation in general in difficult places. So how can open tools allow you to get better access to information you need to pursue the things you want to do? And the other track was in very much this kind of media and peace building track, which is what Defy Hate Now uh, became, or how that was defined. So basically all our work relates to these two kind of areas, but of course there's intersections and interactions uh, between you know, people working with technology in difficult places and with peace building and media. Um, and the, the MMN project, uh, which that game there is, is about the migrant media network is, is kind of an offshoot also from uh, Defy Hate Now, uh, which turned the Defy Hate Now process around a little bit. Uh, in Defy Hate Now, we would work with communities in uh, conflict countries with target communities. With the Migrant Media Network, it was working with migrant communities in Berlin or in Germany, um, together with them to develop information systems that they would bring back home uh, to prevent uh, irregular and dangerous migration, to look at alternatives to migration. So those, those are sort of like our, our three main areas. Like I said, they're all kind of connected in one way or another, uh, but there's all kinds of other things that are related to it because you know, ultimately we're also talking about empowerment. Uh, you know, we're, we're deeply concerned about uh, you know, women's role in societies in conflict regions and scenarios. Um, that's where the basically the feminist cafe uh, was was developed um, mm -hmm. you know, by by Blen. Um, and yeah, I guess you know lots of other little little things that we do <laughs> that are either not funded or uh, we we started a, a really interesting program that I wish we could continue somehow. But again, it's just, uh, it's been impossible to get money for it, uh, which was in Pakistan in in Karachi. Um, that came about because the people in Karachi saw the Peace Hat camp 
uh, and they found out about Ascotec and, and this kind of stuff. They said, well, can you not do this here in Karachi? And I said, well, it's not quite the same thing, but we can develop something else. And we, we did, but ah, these things, we need, need money. Yeah. So, but yeah, I don't know. I can't remember what your question was anymore. I think you answered it. You've led us through a lovely... But yeah, those are sort of, I mean, those three, three threads. And right now, we haven't been able to get follow-up funding, for example, for MMN. So it's also kind of stuck somewhere. Um, but we're trying to sort that out somehow. Well, that's it for me. I mean, please also feel free to ask questions. I've asked the questions I need to ask or I wanted to ask. So, but other than that, I'm really happy. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Well, Fabi, it's great to have you back, back here. I know. <laughs> yeah. Now in, in the flesh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, yeah. yeah, so thank you so much, Steve. I think um, I'll just take some photos of you guys, if you don't mind.